take up a course of development within a community of committed individuals. And they're committed not to a particular set of beliefs or a particular individual or a particular victory over opponents. They're committed to individually and collectively reducing foolishness and enhancing connectedness. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to Society in Question, where we use nuance to explore and challenge the social and cultural forces that are shaping the human condition. This week, I am honored to have on the show John Verveke, who is a professor at the University of Toronto where he lectures on the topics of Buddhism, psychology, and cognitive science, which in my mind is a pretty badass combination of fields to study. Now, normally at this part of the episode, I would take a minute to let you know about what we talked about, but I'm honestly starting to wonder if that preface is really worth your time, so we're going to skip that. But what I do want to quickly say is that if you are a fan of history, philosophy and understanding the human condition, which I'm guessing you probably are if you're here listening to this, then I really, really, really strongly recommend jumping over to to John's YouTube channel and checking out his series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. It's really good stuff. And you can also listen to it as a podcast. So, you know, what I recommend, what I did for the longest time was I would just pop in the headphones, take about an hour walk and just enjoy walking in the sun listening to these really thought-provoking ideas that John is talking about in this series. So maybe that's something that you might try as well. And I suspect it's going to captivate your attention in the same way it captivated mine. So I think that's probably enough for now. I'll link to that in the show notes so you can find his series. But otherwise, let's just go ahead and jump into it, into this brilliant, exciting, and fun, thought-provoking conversation. Everyone, please welcome to Society in Question, John Verveke. Like many others, I found out about you from your YouTube series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. And I think a good place maybe to start then is just one, I'm just wondering what was it that made you feel that this was such an important series to make and put out into the world? Because of my own personal background and my own personal story, I found myself in the midst of a meaning crisis, uh, a very significant one. And of course, for a long time, I thought it was largely just concerning me. As I started to address it and understand it and undertake practices for addressing and ameliorating it and to start to reflect, because I'm also a a cognitive scientist, and reflect on those practices and what is it they were doing and what was the problem they were tackling and what is this meaning that I was hungering for and why was that happening? I noticed as I started to study it and start to build um, those scientific reflections into some of my courses that my students were like, really, that's the part that they would start to get really excited about and really interested in. And I was teaching a course uh, called Buddhism and Cognitive Science. And within two or three years, that course had started to evolve, right, uh, into the issue around Buddha, why Buddhism and cognitive science were coming together as they were in me at that time. And then I, I well, well, I, you know, I thought, huh, I wonder if, you know, you have to be careful when you generalize from with an N of one, but I, I reflected and I thought, well, maybe I'm not unique. I mean, I'm getting enough 
response from my students uh, to think that, you know, that's at least plausibly not the case. So I started to build uh, a, a historical scientific argument that the reason why Buddhism and cognitive science were coming together so much um, is that they were in different ways trying to address this central issue of meaning and transformation and wisdom cultivation. And that course grew and it grew more and more in, in sort of dialogue with you know, progress, progressive iterations of the course and progressive groups of students. And then eventually I had one student come to me um, and say, you know, you should put this on YouTube as a series. And he had, uh, well, he was a former student and he had professional editing, filming, his dad was, so he, and he said, and I've got a crew and I will donate this. All I want is credit for the, being the producer and the director. And I said, are you sure this is going to be like 50 hours? <laughs> and he said, very sure, really believe in this. So it was because of Alan uh, that uh, I did it. Uh, and he convinced me. Uh, and of course, he convinced me to do it. And then, of course, I was still skeptical. Well, you know, maybe this is just a, you know, a niche or, and it's going to be like a 50, 50 episodes an hour long. But then the response to the series took off. And, you know, and then uh, uh, and, and at the same time, the work I'm doing on meaning in life and mystical experiences and awe and consciousness and all of this started to take off. Um, and so it became this self-rolling wheel, to use one of Nietzsche's phrases. Uh, I'll be a good little philosopher here. And for the sake of the audience, uh, see if we can drill down into exactly what you mean when you say meaning and what maybe the meaning crisis is really about on a more, on a deeper level, on a more detailed level. Sure, and that's very important. Um, so I'll, I'll reply with the, with the initial formulation given by a very good philosopher, Susan Wolf, meaning in life and why it matters. And that's a, a philosophical. So I wanna be clear what the distinction is she's making and how that distinction has been taken up into the psychology of meaning in life and the cognitive science of it. And so there's sort of three steps to the answer. So Susan Wolf makes a distinction between the meaning of life, which is typically a metaphysical proposal, a proposal about that, fun that reality is fundamentally structured so that we have a particular destiny or purpose or plan that we need to discover for ourselves. Um, like Susan Wolf, I'm deeply skeptical of that teleological reading of the universe, the idea that the universe is, you know, has a grand purpose and a grand narrative, and I want to uh, belong to it. I, be I, I do believe that people at an earlier times in history could plausibly and rationally believe that, but I don't think I can do that. So I don't mean that, right? And so some people think I mean that, and they say there is no, you know, grand purpose. It's in, a, and then they and then they do something really interesting. They say, you know. It's all empty, just accept it. And then I wanna to say to them, why should I accept it? And I don't mean, what's your reasons? It's why should I value the truth of what you say? You clearly think there's truth, which means you clearly think there is a valuable connection between your cognition and reality that should direct your life. And that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about meaning in life, the idea that we seek a fundamental kind of connectedness that realizes us in important ways. Our connectedness to ourselves, 
our connectedness to other people and realizing them and being realized ourselves in them, in and through them. And then the realization of, you know, reality, uh, what's ultimately real. We seek a connection to ourselves, to each other, and to what is most real. And that connectedness that we find intrinsically valuable and as a guide to our life, that's what Susan Wolf ultimately means by meaning in life. She, and, and then she poses you know, certain problems around that. Um, and I, if you want, we can get back into that. But then the next move is, then this is taken up by sol- psychologists like you know, uh, Hicks did uh, an anthology on the experience of meaning in life. What is it people are talking about? And there's this, all this research of uh, people like Heinzelman and many others Right. And, and it, it again comes down to what people are looking for, right, is they're looking for sort of four factors that all have to do with this connectedness. Uh, basically, uh, one of the things they want, which you're right, is they want a, a, they want a sense of purpose. Now, the, the thing that I need to say right, uh, 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 right from the beginning is purpose is not identical or sufficient for meaning in life. <clears throat> and the fact that our culture equates meaning with purpose shows again that we are misframing the phenomena in a fundamental way so what do you need in addition to purpose well you need uh, a sense of significance that you're having experiences that are deep and deeply real to you you need to have a sense that reality is fundamentally intelligible <clears throat> that you are connected in, in, in a way that makes sense of it. So this is co- called coherence. And then what's turning out to be really important is what the fourth factor, which is called mattering, which is not how are things relevant to you, but how you are relevant things to things beyond you that you think have a value in and of themselves independent of how they please you or give you pleasure or whatever you want to say so you know a prototypical example of mattering is when people have a child right the, the, the and what they're doing is not how is the child relevant to them but how are they relevant to the child how are they mattering how are they making mm. a difference in the life of the child and the life of the child has a value in ultimately autonomously independent from what the ch- what the child can do for them i take that just as a prototypical example that, that's like uh, Durkheim's social obligations, right? That was one of the big determining factors on uh, how, how much suicide correlated with the uh, amount and of And anatomy, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, this, and, this, and, and, and to just, if we can, thank you for bringing up Durkheim, if we can go build on Durkheim's point, you know, Durkheim's point is, you know, the realization, the reality of culture or, or society. He, he uses those in a way, well, you know this, he uses those in a way that, really he sees them more as interdependent uh, than the way we tend to analytically separate them. And the point is, as sociocultural beings, we have to not only care how things are relevant to us, we have to deeply care about how we're relevant to others, to the culture, and ultimately to the environment that makes that cultural, that sociocultural organization possible. And so that's, I think, I think you're completely right to draw a connection between Durkheim uh, and that recognition of our sociocultural reality and ultimately its, its ecological environmental embeddedness. I'm extending Durkheim a little bit here, sure. uh, but there's hints of that in there. There's hints of that in there in Durkheim, right? 
And so that that's where the where, that's where the psychology gets you, and that's what I'm talking about. Now, now let's go to the cognitive science. Notice I was invoking a couple terms here. I was talking about how things, how you're connected to things. Uh, the word, or uh, one of the etymological sources of the word religion is religia, which means to bind together, to be connected, right? So notice I used another term that conveys it very well, which is relevance. How are things relevant to you? How, do you, how are you relevant to us? How do, how do they matter? How are they significant? Notice these are all ways of talking about relevance, and that's not a coincidence. So the core of the cognitive scientific dimension to meaning in life is the this idea that your fundamental general intelligence is a process of relevance realization. What does that mean? What that means is the amount of information available to you in the environment is overwhelming. You can't, you can't consider it all. The number of different, think about all the patterns of actions you could string together. I could bend my right finger, then my left index finger. I could bend them simultaneously. I could bend this one, then this one. I can grab, like the, the patterns of behavior you can generate are also combinatorially explosive. This is, this is what's come out of the problem-solving literature. The amount of information in your long-term memory and the potential connections you can make to it. Is there connections between aardvark and, uh, and, 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 and Australian tin mining? Maybe there are. Who, what, the, right? Just thinking you can do that. That's combinatorial explosive. And yet what you do, and you're doing it right now, is that of all of the things you could be paying attention to, all the connections you could be paying, could be making in memory, and all the sequences of actions, out of all of those, you're doing what you're doing right now. You're zeroing in on what's relevant, making the relevant connections in memory, and responding appropriately to your environment. So you stay connected to it. You have a continuity mm. of connection to it. That's the core of your intelligence. It's a dynamic process. Let me give you just a quick example. Just a very, and this is not meant to be an exhaustive explanation. It's meant to be an instance of, you know, this process. Notice how your attention is working right now. You're, there's two opposing forces in your attention. One is trying to concentrate and select and narrow down what you're focusing. And what is John saying? What is John's? And then there's another part that's associating and maybe even wanting to mind wander and drift away. Uh, where's, right? And notice what you're doing. Your mind is constantly opening up variations new possibilities for what you could pay attention to, and then selecting down which is the best one to fit me to the context right now. Mm -hmm. And then opening it up. And what is that like? That's exactly like the process of biological evolution. There's variation in the species that open up the options. Then there's competition for survival, which selects the ones that best fit that environment. They reproduce, the variations open up, and that's evolution. So your intelligence is not a biological, but a process of cognitive evolution of what you're paying attention to, similar things are going on and what you're remembering and similar sequences of, of what's your sensory motor and they're all interacting together. That's your intelligence. It's a dynamical self-organizing cognitive evolution. It's not in your head, it's between your head and the world. Like the biological fittedness, the adaptivity of an organism isn't in the organism, on the environment, it's the connectedness between the good, the fittedness, right? That makes the organism survive. It's similar, like what states of mind 
what states of attention are surviving in you right now, moment to set, and how are they coming from their ancestral states and how are they giving birth to their descendant states? Now, here's the final thing about this that gets us to why the meaning crisis. Given that whole picture about what it is, why it's important to you and then how it actually functions, here's the key idea. The very processes that make you adaptively, dynamically fit to the environment are also continually making you, right, vulnerable to self-deceptive behavior, self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. Because what they're doing is, right, let's go back to your attention. Certain things are salient to you, standing out for you, right? That means you're actually ignoring many things. Like you're probably not thinking about how many books are stacked vertically on your upper shelf behind you right now until I said that, right? But that might become salient to you. That might become salient to you. Now, here's what I want everybody to remember because this happens to us and it happens in various degrees, minor, almost, you know, throughout the day, sometimes major degrees. When you've had an aha experience, when you realized, oh, I've been looking at it completely the wrong way. I thought this was important. This was salient to me, but it turns out this is what's important. This is what I should have been paying attention to. Have you had th that kind of experience? Yeah, definitely. It's the it's one of the most enjoyable experiences I think that exists. <laughs> right. Now, why is it enjoyable? Because you were actually, the very way you're framing reality was disconnecting you. So it's, it's thwarting itself. The very processes that are trying to connect you to the world have disconnected, are disconnecting you from the world. And, and what happens in insight is that that structure gets dynamically reorganized, right? And a new possibility, a new way of fitting to yourself. And, you, and so, aha. Now, the, uh -huh. the positivity of the ha uh -huh tells you, yes, I really want to be better connected, the religio. Mm. But the negativity tells you, and sometimes we can be trapped in very profound misframings. That's why we need to go into therapy or, right, et cetera. You can realize, wait, the very attempts to make sense of this were actually disconnecting me in a fundamental way from reality. So notice that we're caught in this really weird bind. The very processes that are trying to connect us have the real capacity to disconnect us. Thankfully, they have a process to self-transcend themselves. So what do we need? What do we need? Because we value that connectedness so much, we need ways of noticing and addressing the self-deception that cuts us off, the self-deceptive, self-destructive right, behavior. And we need, we need ways of enhancing those insights, transformative, you know, that, those moments of self-transcendence where we can reconnect deeply. So we need, we need something that deals with our foolishness and enhances our meaning. I take it that that's what we've met when, when we talk about wisdom. Mm. That's what wisdom is. So the meaning crisis can be understood this way. Across cultures and across historical contexts, People have realized what you and I have been talking about, I believe, and they have cultivated ecologies of practices, very complex, you know, dynamical systems of practices for dealing with that very dynamic system of cognition in order to try and reduce the foolishness and enhance the connectedness. And that's wisdom. The thing is, 
So that ecology of practices has to be set within a worldview in which all of that makes sense, is homed, is legitimate, is given guidance. And this is how I can point to you the sort of the, 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 the where the teeth of the meaning crisis bite you. I can ask you where you go for information and you get, there's too much. You're lacking relevance realization. There's too much information. Who's telling the truth? What matters? What's important? What's trivial? So, oh, I need to improve that ability to sift through. Well, uh, I need knowledge. Well, where do I go for knowledge? Well, there's science. But you know what's wrong with the scientific worldview? It doesn't really tell us much about wisdom. The scientific worldview has this weird thing in it. The scientific worldview gives us an explanation of everything, but the cognition that actually generates science. Mm -hmm. We don't know. So science has no home. The practice of science has no home within the scientific worldview, and neither do we. So science is no help on this issue, at least science as it currently is. I, I want to say that science is a self-correcting process. So now I'm going to hit you really hard. Well, you know where to go to, for information, but then you're overwhelmed with, I need to enhance relevance realization. The knowledge institutions don't give you this enhanced ability. And in fact, they seem to be really exacerbating our sense of disconnectedness. And now, where do you go for wisdom? Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. Silent room on that one. Yeah, that's the meaning crisis. That's the meaning crisis. And for very, uh, and the, what I try to argue is for very his, various historical reasons and factors, it's a historical argument. We, we, have, we, we are in a position in which other cultures typically do not find themselves in. We are suffering a wisdom famine. And therefore, we have no way of seriously talking to each other and helping each other and training each other to ameliorate self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior and to enhance the connectedness that is constitutive of your cognitive agency. That's the meaning process. Wow, I love it. So I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to spin that back at you in a, in a summary and see if I'm interpreting this correctly. So let's think about the 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 drive for meaning is inevitable because it's evolutionarily adaptive and we have to find our way to orient ourselves in the world for the yes. sake of survival and that means relating to others and that means having frameworks of thought that are useful to us. The problem is is that as cultural social cultural animals we can create frameworks that are self-deceptive mm -hmm. and we've done that so much perhaps especially in the last few hundred years that now we're we no longer have access to the tools the psycho technologies the wisdom to yeah. navigate through these foolish uh frameworks that we're now operating in that's well said that's well said Wonderful. and then and then what you could thank you <laughs> uh, and then what you can see, and this is work I did with Christopher Pietro, well, building on work that I did with Chris and with Philip Amesovic, you can see a, a bunch of symptoms. Uh, and then you do, you do a diagnostic form of argument, which is, right, which is what's called an inference to the best explanation. What's the best explanation for this whole set of phenomena we find? We find, right, you know, we find there is... An increase, especially among your generation, and of suicide, and it's not correlated with poverty, contrary to what we've been taught by capitalism, that once people are out of poverty, then they will be, in fact, right, there's, 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 the correlations are much more complex. 
And you can find very affluent areas like Silicon Valley suffering from this problem. And what's really important is the recent work of uh, Tatiana Schnell, in which she showed that people can commit suicide without being in, in clinical depression. It's just the raw fact of their lives being meaningless, mm. right? And then you compare that to a, a poll in the UK. I was talking to somebody the other day, I think it was Jules Evans, and he said, you know, people in England are sort of, you know, happily secular. And I'm thinking, I don't think so. And I started challenging them on this. There's a recent poll, I think it was 2017, 89% of them think their lives are meaningless. Mm. You know, what's funny is I think I recently read a Gallup poll or something else that uh, it was like 89% of people find their work to be meaninglessness. Meaningless. Meaning, has no meaning. So it's no crazy meaning. to me that you can combine that. You see such a high correlation between work not being meaningful and life not being meaningful. I, you know, It's not everything, of course. I think relationships are a big part of that. But I think that's telling given our society's focus on work. I think that's very telling. It's, it, it, so it points to the way it, what you said earlier. That means that we ultimately have some kind of misframing because we're simultaneously telling people, you know, uh, the place where you will most find meaning is in work. And then we're we're, we're, we're giving them jobs that uh, to the vast majority of people are failing to do that essential function. That's an well, they don't have they don't have a lot of salience. Right. If you have a very routine job and you're looking for that, I, we, I'm sure we'll get into the flow at some point. But if you're looking for the flow channel. You're looking for that skill challenge ratio at your work and it's just very routine and it doesn't give you that reason to focus then you're not tapping into that meaning making machinery and you're just kind yeah. of wallowing this wallowing in this sense of i guess ennui <laughs> yeah and i think let, 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 i, I want to deepen that uh, before i go back to the symptomology because well this is a way of going back to the symptomology one way i see that being described for example on youtube and the internet is many people think they have bullshit jobs. Now, this is this is an important, I mean, this is, right, and this is something we tracked in the book, um, and, and, you know, I've been talking about this Frankfurt's, the philosopher Frankfurt's notion of bullshit, but this pervasive sense people have, not only within their work, but within their relationships, within social media, within politics, that every, that bullshit is on the rise, that, right? And, and, and bullshit is the opposite of relevance realization, right? What do I mean by that? The basic idea of bullshit is the liar, the liar manipulates you by depending on the fact that you care about being connected religio to reality. So they try to convince you that something is true. And because you value truth, you value being connected to reality. That is how they manipulate your behavior. The bullshit artist works totally differently. The bullshit artist tries to get you indifferent to whether or not something is true and get you caught up in how salient it is to you. So Frankfurt gives the, uh, the, the example, if you're, you're at, you know, you're at, you know, maybe like a football stadium and somebody comes out and says stuff like America is the greatest country in the world and, and everybody gets clapped and everybody knows at some level that's not really true. And most of what they're saying is not, but they don't care at that moment because what they, what's salient is they're all together and they're all enjoying their patriotism. Or you have the example of like a, a standard advertisement, a commercial where, you know, this person is using this particular shampoo and then they're, they are just surrounded by sunlight and beautiful music and people are smiling at them. It's like, really? Yeah. Do you really think a 
shampoo will do that for you? No, but it makes all of that salient to you and makes you not really care about whether or not it's true. The, what the bullshit artist wants you to do is the opposite of wonder. See, when you wonder, what's salient to you is that you don't know. And then you want, and you want to learn, you want to understand. The bullshit artist is trying to get you to not, right? Not pay attention, to, to not notice that you really don't understand what's going on and just find it salient what's going on in that situation and shut down your questioning. Yeah, it feels like a bit of a challenge between certainty and mystery as I'm hearing you say that. Well, the, the, so, it, yeah, so the, the, I mean, that goes back to the Socratic point. The Socratic mm. point is that uh, one of the ways we bullshit ourselves is the pretense that we have certainty or understanding when we don't. Uh, and, and, we, and we do this in very powerful ways. Like you'll not, like I'll sometimes do this and, and I do it respectfully and lovingly with my students. I don't do it like, right? I'll say, well, why are you here? Oh, well, I want to get a good education. Well, why? Well, I want to, I want to get a, you know, a good job. Well, why? Well, I want my life to be meaningful. And then I'll say, oh, so that's your goal. So you must know what this meaning is. Tell me, please. And they'll go, what? Well, this is what you're doing it for, right? Yes. What is it? Now, notice you're at a decision point here. You, hear, you can either wonder, you can realize, I'm deeply attracted to this, but I don't know what it is. I need to understand it better. Or you can bullshit yourself and you can say, I know what it is, right? And, the, uh, and all I have to do is work really harder and, and, right? and I ignore the fact that I don't really understand what it is I'm pursuing because I really do know. And I, I don't face the anxiety that I might not know. You can wonder or you can bullshit yourself. And, the, and all Socrates does is get you to that decision point. He can't make that decision for you. You have to make that decision point. Are you going to wonder about meaning and cultivate wisdom? Or are you going to pretend you know what it is with absolute certainty so that all of your actions are justifiable to yourself and you don't experience any anxiety or fear that you, right, that you might be going seriously off track? Mm -hmm. Apologies if this is, takes us on another tangent, but what that makes me think of is currently in our society i feel like there's so much stress and anxiety because of the way our economic system set up because of the the narratives we have things like pull yourself up by your bootstraps bootstraps the sense of uh social status just being so important to us um and i can't help but think most people when are when they're put on this cusp you know they they they're not ready to embrace more anxiety that the question brings, they want the certainty. They want the self-deception because it's a warm blanket and a little bit of order in a world of chaos. So that's very good. Uh, I, I, and what we have to ask ourselves is what predisposes them one way rather than the other? Because you said most people. So there's must be something that predisposes them. And here's a proposal to you coming out of the work of Eric Fromm. And it, and it has to do with these two modes around which we orient ourselves and how we can experience uncertainty. So let's take it, let's compare two things. Let's compare wonder and curiosity. If, I, if you're curious about something and you realize you lack knowledge and you need to have that knowledge, right? That's what curiosity is. Oh, I don't know that. I need to know it, right? What happens if I, what happens if I, you know, prolong that experience? So you're reading the detective novel 
And I, every time you're getting close to the end, I add on another hundred pages and another hundred. You're going to, ah, it gets aversive because you need to have, notice the verb I'm using. You need to have some information in order to empower you to control and manipulate the world. And you need to control and manipulate the world because this is what from called the having mode. There's things you need to have control over food, medicine, shelter, oxygen. And I, and I, I say this carefully, sexuality. Because it, it right because if we don't reproduce, we're doomed as a species. I don't mean you should be controlling other people. So please hear how I'm using that word, right? That's why. But, but you know what I mean. Because if I was to isolate you and put you into solitude and give you all the food and water you want, there's like ah something's missing, right? Okay. So curiosity. Now compare that to wonder. Wonder isn't. Wonder is not. There's a hole that I need to fill. Wonder is like you're taking the hole, H-O-L-E, and you're expanding it to the hole. W-H-O-L-E. You're wondering, right? And notice how I, what does this mean? What does this all mean? Who am I really? Mm -hmm. What is real? That's wonder. And notice if I prolong wonder, I can get awe. Now, awe is very interesting because awe is one of these experiences where we're realizing how much we don't know or understand. Our sense of self is being diminished. And if you're in the having mode, as you said, that's terrifying. Because if you're thinking, I need to control, I need to fill in the gaps. Oh no, the gaps are huge and I'm losing control. That's terrifying. Yeah. But if you're in the being mode, how do people actually experience that? They experience awe as something profoundly positive and they deeply seek it out and they will devote themselves to practices that renew their access to the state of awe. So how you turn on that cusp that Socrates puts you on depends on, do you come at it from the having mode or you do, do you come at it from the being mode? What's the being mode about? The having mode is needs that are met by having things, controlling them and consuming them. The being mode is met by becoming. They should actually be called the becoming needs. These are developmental needs. These are needs that are met by you increasing your connectedness to yourself, to each other, and to reality. That's why you ask questions about meaning when you're in the being mode and you're cultivating meaning and you're not trying to control and manipulate. And think about the difference of how you relate to things. When I'm in the having mode, I, I'll use Buber's language. I have an I-it relationship. Things are, I, I understand things insofar as they have a categorical identity. That's a shoe, that's a piece of chalk so that I can readily manipulate and control them. But in the being mode, when I'm, where I'm concerned, not about control, where I'm concerned about connection and think about the differences in those and meaning, then I don't want to control things. I want to be transformed so that it can connect to them, so I can be conformed to them. So I have an I-thou relationship. So think, and I, the example I use is the relationship you have to somebody that you love. So if I was to come to this beautiful woman who is my partner right now, uh, and I was to say to her, if I was to go into an I-it relationship to her, you know, I'm with you because you remind me of all the other women I've ever been with, and I completely understand you. There's no mystery to you, right? I, I know how to control and manipulate you to services all to service all of my consumptive needs. Isn't that great? Aren't you? How, how, what's that relationship? Yeah, that relationship is over. <laughs> that relationship is over, right? Because being in love is not that notice even the difference in language being in love is not the same thing as having sex or having love 
Yeah, which is another, yeah, wow, yeah. Oh, I'm glad you said that. It's such a, oh, nah, that's, a, oh, that's so juicy for, and pregnant for what it implies. But so to answer your question, we have to ask ourselves, right? When we're put on this cusp where we can either fall into self-deceptive bullshit or we can wonder, and what did Socrates say? Wonder is the beginning of wisdom and we can move toward the cultivation of wisdom. What puts us there? What, what, does, what helps us be, what puts us there, right, is we're predisposed if we're in the having mode or the being mode, or even worse, if we're in modal confusion, where we think, where we try to satisfy the being needs of meaning and wisdom by having, by having more cars, having more power, having more sex. And then that will really lock us down into, I don't want to know that I don't know. I don't want to know that I, there can be little gaps and little holes that I'm curious about, but I can, but I need to be able to fill them in. And I don't want to know what I don't know in a profound way. And then that makes the cultivation of wisdom. This was one of Plato's great insights, almost impossible. And that means that you're really, really bereft in a very powerful way. Yeah. I'm going to try to bring in a little bit of neuroscience to this, I guess. It makes me think about the idea that if your amygdala is active, you're kind of in this very um, back against the wall, fight or flight attachment state where it's withdrawal. Yeah. And, 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 and in your example, everything's brought close in, right? Yeah. Your, your, your lens on reality is very small yes. and low to the ground. But if you can be in a state where your, let's say prefrontal cortex is more active, where you can play with ideas, where you can play with abstract thought, where you can have expansive thought, then you're able to have that kind of, let's say almost like shamanistic soul flight type experience where you're yes. looking down and you're able to then see the wisdom or the reconfiguration of your, of your knowledge of your ideas that you need to navigate out of the rut that maybe the stress or anxiety put you in. And I guess I'm just thinking about that in relation to what I was saying before. Most people are in that stress and anxiety. I think when you, I think we just have a lot of people who are in that amygdala, activated mindset because they feel like their backs against the wall because in America, for instance, the average person is, you know, five has $500 in their bank account and a hospital bills a thousand, you know what I mean? You're just waiting yep. for that one shoe to drop. Wow. That's a lot. That's great. And, and so let's, let's do the neuro, the, the neurocognitive stuff, because um, first of all, what you're pointing out is, you know, there's increasing risk research on what's called a scarcity mentality. And when you're in scarcity mentality, you lose cognitive flexibility. And, and, what, and you're right to talk about cognitive flexibility as a parietal, sorry, as a frontal, actually prefrontal frontal sort of parietal relationship. That's the PFIT theory of general intelligence. Uh, but what we also know, right, is the way in which the prefrontal cortex is sculpting the response space, doing your salient landscaping, right, is interacting with the, with the interaction between the hemispheres. And so what you could ask is, well, what can I do to introduce more cognitive flexibility to the prefrontal cortex to enhance the possibilities of insight? And this is where, well, what you do is you step back and look at the way you're framing things, your salience landscaping. You engage in mindfulness practices meditative and contemplative practices and they and there's increasing experimental evidence that they are right they predispose they enhance your capacity for insight the very flexibility 
Would you consider flow in that sense then as a Very much. practice? So, yeah. okay. So I've, I've recently published work with uh, Leo Ferraro and Arian Hera Bennett. And what we basically argued is that flow is an insight cascade. Mindfulness is not only predictive of insight, it's predictive of, of flow. So Csikszentmihalyi says one of the thing, so there's all these environmental conditions that are predictive of getting into the flow state. What are practices that are predictive? And that, and he, mindfulness practices are predictive of getting into the flow state. I was going to say, as we were talking before about that evolutionary um, proclivity that we have to find salience and meaning in the world, um, I'm just now thinking like flow to me seems like it's such an intoxicating experience because we are wired to want to enjoy that pursuit of meaning. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, great. And, and notice how it's dynamic and self-organizing, right? Because, okay, so think about, uh, think about this. Think about the kind of activities that produce the flow state, like jazz or rock climbing. Like rock climbing is a really absurd and dangerous thing to do, but people do it and they do it because it gets them into the flow state. Why? Because if, right, they, if they're climbing, right, it has to be one of the features of flow is the environment has to be challenging. Challenging in what way, right? What they do is they're, they're in, literally and physically in a position and they're physically impasse. They can't move and they have to restructure how they're seeing things, what's salient, how they're, what, how they're inhabiting their own body. They have to dynamic, like very comprehensively restructure and go, oh, this. And then they get, and then they move. And then, oh, this. And each insight is priming the next insight that's priming the next insight. And you're getting an insight cascade or jazz. So what's in jazz? I, I pick up the melody, right? Or the, what's happening from somebody else. And then I have to innovate it. And then they are going to innovate. And I have to adjust and keep with that. And what we're doing is we're driving each other into an insight, priming insight, priming insight. And jazz reliably gets people into the flow state. It's a feedback but, loop. Yeah. Yeah. But no, but let's talk about that feedback loop. So first of all, it, the flow state is adaptive. And what, in the sense that, right, it's optimal in two ways. People say it's the best, it's the, it's, it's the best experience, better than pleasure. People will reliably say that. And that's why they do rock climbing, right? Rock climbing is not pleasurable, right? Um, at least as far as I can tell. Um, and that's, they're also optimal in the sense that they're at their best. That's why athletes are continually trying to get into the flow state. Okay. So one reason why it's optimal in both those senses is because we're enhancing insight. And what's the insight in doing? It's enhancing religio your relevance realization, your sense of being connected. That's why in the flow state, people talk about it. Be, everything is super salient. It's like you, the, the world was a TV screen and you turned up both the brightness and the contrast. And it's really, everything is super salient. And there's an ongoing sense of discovery. And there's a sense of, and this is the right word, at one minute with the world, just profound connect. They're, they, they're, going, they're in a transformative process that is bringing them into conformity with the world. So they feel like their actions are filled with grace. The, you know, the hockey goalie, he puts out his hand and his puck is there, or I'm a martial artist. You, your hand just moves and it's blocking a strike. And, like, and it's, it's this, although in one sense, you know, you're expending out effort and another sense, it feels effortless because you're so at one with things. Is that See a, how it's an enhancement of the religio and the relevance realization? Yeah. 
is that a way in your mind to increase the flexibility and power of the frontal cortex to prevent what we were talking about before because by you shut off because you're cre- you're creating an ego death right and you have less reason therefore to defend your ego so yeah. you have less reason to have an a, an amygdala fight or flight you're, response you're exactly right so one of the things that goes away is is narrative subconsciousness that 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 sort of nanny voice we have in our head. How am I doing? What's my status? Do people like me? Am I ugly? How's my hair? Right, all that crap that we're constantly wasting a, a, quite a bit of effort on, right? That all drops away. And what actually happens is, remember the experiment where you had damage in the prefrontal, the, the, the amount of activity in the prefrontal cortex goes down. That doesn't go up. It goes down because what you're doing is you're actually disinhib, you're, you're mm-hmm. allowing for much more dynamic flexibility in its functionality rather than keeping it it's like you went into a machine and normally you have all these switches flipped that keep it a particular kind of machine and then what you go in is you and if you could do it carefully all right you you turn off a bunch of those switches so now it becomes a different kind of machine capable of doing things it couldn't do before and so that's what's going on there's something else going on in the flow state it's really important it goes towards this connectedness again Okay, so this has to do with work on intuition. So what is intuition? Well, intuition is a sense of, I know this, but I don't know how I know it. I just know it. And when we like it, we think it's good, it's intuition. And when it's wrong and takes us astray, we call it bias or prejudice, right? <laughs> right? And so what we have to ask is, what makes it work well and what makes it work poorly? What is it? I think the best account of it is given by Hogarth and it's based on all the work started by Reber and others about what's called implicit learning. Implicit learning is the fact that you can pick up on very, he did it with random letter number strings, right? And I won't go into the details of the experiment. I describe it elsewhere. I describe it in this series. But the point is you can pick up on complex patterns in the environment without deliberate effort or focal awareness. In fact, if you try to pick up on it, with deliberate effort and focal awareness, you won't pick up the complex pattern. So notice how what I'm doing here, I have to shut off, right? And I'm opening myself up. Now, the problem with implicit learning is it's that it's implicit. (laughs) The very thing that makes it adaptive, it makes it problematic. Now why? Because it's implicit, it, it, it lacks the capacity to distinguish or discern. What do I mean by that is it doesn't care what kind of pattern it's picking up on. Mm-hmm. It just, it'll pick up on any complex pattern. And it may be a real causal pattern in the world, or it may be picking up on weird, you know, correlational patterns that just happen to be in your environment at that moment. Or patterns that you're being given by social media that's monitoring your every behavior. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And you're being manipulated by it. Thank you. That's that's an excellent addition. So the point is when it when it when it picks up on the causal patterns, that's intuition. But when it picks up on the correlations and says things that aren't real, aren't causally efficacious, that's when it's bias. That's when it's prejudice. So Hogarth asked this very Good question. How do we educate intuition? That's the title of his book. Because if we try to replace it with explicit processing, we destroy it. So how do we educate it? Right? And what you do is, he says, you try to, you, what you can explicitly take note of is the context in which you're doing your implicit learning. 
And then you structure that context. How, why? Well, you structure that context in order to increase your chances that you will, that you will pick up on causal patterns rather than the correlational patterns. And so he asked a very good question. Well, what practice do, do, do we have that really helps us distinguish causal patterns from correlational patterns? Experimental science. That's what experiments are designed to do. Our experiments are designed to overcome our bias in noticing complex patterns by getting us to distinguish causal patterns from merely correlational patterns. That's what an experiment is about. So what do you do in an experiment? You try and make the, 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 the variable you're manipulating and the variable, and the, right? You try, you, you, so the independent and the dependent variable. So there's the one I'm uh, manipulating and I'm hoping to change. It, it, the one I'm manipulating is the independent variable, and the one I'm hoping to change is the dependent variable. So, for example, if I, you know, if I drink more milk, will I be sleepy when I go to bed? Right, right, it, right. So, what you want is you want there to be a clear relationship between them. So, in experiment, you have to worry about what are called confounds. Well, what if you're only drinking milk when it's one one a.m. in the morning? It's maybe you're going to bed late that's making you sleepy, not the milk. So you have to make sure, no, I better drink the milk when I might, I'm not really that sleepy, like 10 p.m. So mm -hmm. I have to make sure that there, there's a clear relationship between right, my action and the response of the environment. Is that okay? Yeah. And then next, right, I have to make sure they're tightly coupled. Changes in, in my action should bring very, very closely tracked changes in the environment. If I increase the amount of milk, right, or the time, I increase the sleepiness. If I decrease it, I decrease the sleepiness, et cetera, right? right? And then next, error matters. That's what we talk about when we talk about the experiment has to be able to disconfirm your hypothesis or it's not a good experiment. So error mm -hmm. matters. So notice, clear relationship between clear feedback between the action and the response, tightly coupled relationship between the action and response and error matters. Those are exactly the three conditions that Csikszentmihalyi says are required to put people into the flow state. So the flow state is not only giving you an insight cascade, it's giving you an insight cascade about complex patterns in a frame, in, a, in, in, a, in an environmental situation in which it is highly likely those complex patterns are going to be real patterns. And that's why it's, the insights translate into effective interaction with the environment, that grace, that power that we find in the flow state. There's one more problem for intuition. Yeah. Intuition, implicit learning can only pick up on existing patterns. It can't look for patterns that have not yet existed. But in science, we don't only look for things that have happened, we try to get at the deeper patterns by, by being able to predict what hasn't yet happened. How could we bring that element of discovery into the implicit learning? By coupling it to insight and an insight cascade, because that's ongoing discovery, ongoing discovery. And so in flow, evolution has honed us for this really wonderful state of an insight cascade coupled in a really, each one of these is adaptive, insight cascade, intuition, you know, generation, and they're coupled together in a way that's deeply adaptive. Mm -hmm. That's why flow is so powerful, so adaptive. It's about connectedness, enhanced relevance realization, and it increases your sense of how meaningful and significant your life is. Do you think 
one of the things that's potentially happening in our culture that is exacerbating the meaning crisis is that we have, <clears throat> let's see, how do I say this? An economy of faux <laughs> flow uh, yes. channels yes. rather yes. than authentic flow. Yeah. Cause yes. I, yes. Yeah, yeah. Like in the book, stealing fire, I think Stephen Kotler and Jamie wheel wrote about it. They do work on the fleet at the fleet flow yeah, genome Institute. Yeah. yeah um, they, you know, they talk about how video games and porn and addiction and yeah, experiences yeah, sure. are ways to tap into that, but it's not, yeah, I don't want to say it's fake, but it's maybe not the best version. So we never got back to it, but that's one of the symptoms of the meeting crisis. It's called the virtual exodus. The people are more and more preferring spending life in virtual worlds. There's books like called the virtual exodus, reality is broken, and they prefer those worlds uh, to uh, the real world. Um, and, and this also relates to things like the addiction crisis, the mental health crisis. These are all symptoms and you can all see how they're all meaning, meaning starvation issues, meaning mm -hmm. starvation issues. So let's talk about video games. First of all, let's be careful. Let's talk about the video games that generate what the WHO calls video game addictions. Not all video games do this. Uh, I, I was a little bit sloppy when I, when I, or when I earlier spoke about this, cause I was tarring all video games with the same brush. So let's limit it to bona fide cases of video game addiction, because then that uh, that helps us. That like we can ask a whole bunch of really important questions here. Okay, so what's video game addiction? Video game addiction is people are finding flow, and I would argue meaning in life, religio within video games. Why? Because they're given an overriding sense of purpose. They are given, right? The world is intelligible. They know the rules. That's the coherence. Their actions matter, right? And, and, they, and they matter to the larger story and the larger world. And they can constantly level up and have aha experiences and track their intuitions and get an intuitive sense. Of, you see how it's just plugging into all, everything that's missing in reality, they're finding here. Now, here's the thing. Why is it addictive? Because unlike... Some, uh, unlike sort of what you might call the evolutionary context in which flow evolved, in which we were hunting or socially interacting with other people, we put them in a context that doesn't transfer to the real world. So mm -hmm. they, get, they get meaning in life and flow, but in a way that doesn't transfer out of that right, virtual world into the real world. Yeah, but, when they step back into the real world, they don't have that mastery or effectance or those deep relationships. Exactly. There's no transfer. Yeah. But now compare that. I'm a Tai Chi player. And this is a story I like to tell because it was it was one of those anecdotes that made an impact on me and then led to you know scientific uh, work. So I've been doing Tai Chi Chuan for, and I've been doing it religiously. I mean, in both senses of the word, I was doing it very regularly, two or three hours a day, attending multiple classes, reading the literature, like I was devoting myself. Right. And I was having all kinds of, you know, you know, a, a lot of the really weird experiences you have when you first, I would have times where I was blistering hot over my whole body or ice cold. I was definitely getting into the flow state while I was doing it repeatedly and all this weird and wonderful stuff. And I was, oh, right. Right. And people can get, get focused on that, but that's not what convinced me. It's really interesting. That's not what convinced me. I was on a path of real transformation because this is what had happened to me. My, some of my friends in graduate school came to me and said, what are you doing? And I thought, oh no, what am I, what, what's going on here? And they said, you're different. 
than you used to be. You're much more balanced in your argumentation. You're much more flexible. You're much more responsive. You used to be so more rigid and sort of trying to destroy the, and you've really opened up. And, and I realized, oh, I hadn't been looking for this, but the Tai Chi skills were percolating through my psyche and they were permeating into many domains of my life in a way that I wasn't even aware of. Other people were pointing it out to me. And for me, that has become the gold standard of knowing if I'm on the path, that mm. kind of thing. And we might want to therefore train skills of mindfulness and also so sensory motor sculpting. In Tai Chi, I'm literally sculpting my body. I'm sculpting what I'm finding salient or relevant. I'm, I'm meditatively focusing my attention inward and then opening it outward. I'm doing the yang of my attention into the yin of my attention. Notice all the... I'm, what I'm doing is I'm trying to, I'm not trying to evolve a particular skill of how to kill the dragon king. I'm trying to evolve the trait of evolvability itself. Yeah. Does that make sense? So what that, to, to take it back, you can do practices that work not on evolving. Remember, relevance realization is a kind of evolution, not of evolving a particular skill like how to play tennis or how to swim. And notice it's amazing that your brain can evolve these two very and the, the, I'm not like oh it's amazing but you can also do practices that evolve your evolvability mm. that enhance your capacity for overcoming self-deception and enhancing connectedness and i think but what you want to do is you want to get to those like you said those very basic domain general abilities that are at the core of our relevance realization and really open them up that's the internal reason why tai chi percolates and permeates but there's an external reason too the practices first of all there's not a single practice there's an ecology of practices are set within a religion Taoism, mm. and the Taoism, the function of the religion is take is to take the imaginal play because that's what these that's what these actions are i'm not actually doing anything i'm doing imaginal play and give me bridging frameworks to help me translate it now imagine if we had a video game that wasn't training you how to kill the dragon king, but was getting you into the more domain general abilities of seeing how you're how you deceive yourself or seeing how you misframe situations and and training it, and then setting that into a broader context and community where people will trying to teach you how to transfer those skills into areas of your life in general. Chances are that video game would now be not a source of addiction, but a source of wisdom. And here's my proposal. That's what religions did. Hmm. Religions did like what a virtual game does. They, they do not imagination in the sense of in your head pictures, but imaginal activity. When I'm doing Tai Chi Chuan, I'm not creating pictures in my head. I'm going through actions that I could potentially use in a fight situation or in an argument situation or an interpersonal uh, situation. Same thing, right? Same thing. When a child is pretending, not imagining a sailboat, but when they're standing on a porch and picking up a stick and putting a, a blanket around them and saying, I am, I'm Captain Drake or I'm a pirate. They're not imagining in the head, they're enacting. This is the difference between the imaginary and the imaginal. They're in, this is imaginal, this is Corbin's term. This is, they're pretending in a way that helps them develop general skills that will transfer to their life. It's serious play. And our culture mm -hmm. is messed up because we don't understand serious play. We either have work or leisure. We don't have serious play. 
the place where we used to do the serious imaginal play that gave us a framework so how we could transfer that to our lives in general that's what religions were i'm proposing absolutely i mean it was a set of rules and it had a it had a you a win condition where you could get into heaven and it it framed every all the focus uh throughout exactly. your life and you go into this weird place you go into the church or the synagogue or the temple and it's not like the rest of the world and you're doing all of this thing where you're assuming different identities and assuming different roles right and you're doing all this imaginal stuff and you're interacting with these beings that can't be seen they have to be projected you don't think of them in it's in your head you imagine them outside and you and i mean and i don't mean this in a deceptive sense i mean you're pretending the way the child is pretending to be a pirate right so that you can develop abilities and skills and then around those rituals is this whole framework right that tells you tries to teach you how to transfer them to the rest of your life and thereby make you wise i am not advocating for any religion i am not i don't belong to any religion and i'm a non-theist but what i'm saying is one of the reasons why you have a meaning crisis please remember what i just said one of the reasons why we have a meaning crisis is the scientific worldview, which is not conducive to meaning and wisdom, simultaneously undermines religious worldviews that were at least reliably capable of, condu- of, of enhancing religio and wisdom in people. Now, religions are capable of doing horrible things. I'm not denying that. Uh, blaming religion for all the problems in the world, I think, is ridiculous. Science has been responsible for lots of horrible things and don't do well that's not true science well then the bad religion isn't true religion i don't want to play those silly games let's compare the best of science to the best of religion not the worst of religion to the best of science or vice versa these are all ridiculous arguments that we should put aside what we have to ask is other than the weird and i think very problematic proposal that people were religious because they're stupid we should ask maybe people were religious because it was conducive to flow and serious play and gave them a framework to how to generalize those capacities outside of their life. Is there empirical evidence to back up what I'm saying? Yes, there is. So one of my RAs has done work looking at people both within religious traditions and outside of religious traditions, secular or atheist, who are attempting to, right, and and who have some I want to put this as they're positively motivated to become wiser, Mm -hmm. right? You can compare them. And we have several ways of measuring sort of valid scales of measuring how wise people are. And then you can just ask this question, how are people doing? And what you find is this people within religious traditions do better. And I know this is going to piss a lot of people off. They do better than people that are within that are without uh, religious tradition for all of the reasons I've just given. It makes sense. Now, now that I've, Uh, I've offended the atheists, I'll offend the theists, because what the empirical evidence also shows is there doesn't seem to be any appreciable difference between which tradition you're in. So that means it's not the specific metaphysical beliefs that are doing all the heavy lifting of helping you cultivate wisdom. It's much more the set of, right, the way you're doing, uh, you could call it imaginally augmented reality training within religion and then learning how to transfer that to your life right what's the alleviation of uh what chiksitmihai calls uh, i think it's anomi 
right? Which is yes, that that yeah, sense of much. like no very standards, much. no no real reliable standards to help you navigate the social human condition. Well, well, notice that all of these traditions deeply commit you to mattering to people other than yourselves. Relatedness. Are you familiar yeah. with the Are you familiar with the self determination theory? Yeah, Ryan Nadeci. Yes, I know that work. Yeah. I continually go back to that. And throughout this conversation, I keep thinking about, you know, the way that autonomy, mastery and relatedness play into all of these things we're talking about as ways to get us to a place where we can act on intrinsic motivation or, or feel that sense of effectiveness. Let's take those. Yeah. Like autonomy, autonomy, right? Self-lying is actually to say that you are, you have, you are cultivate. Remember we talked about how, this is a self-organizing, evolving process. Evolution is an autonomous process in that way. And what you're doing with autonomy is you're trying to get that process to function as smoothly as it possibly can. That would be my interpretation of autonomy. Mastery. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, yeah. And when I think of like flow or um, yes. tapping into that flow channel, who knows better than yourself where your optimal skill um, and challenge ratio will be. And if that's the case, you need to be autonomous enough to find it because if you're in a society or an environment that restricts your behavior, you can't access what I would even really call. I would, in some ways I would call that flow channel, the Tao, you know, I would call that the line is the religion of flow. Yeah. I mean, I'd love both deeply if you haven't noticed, but, uh, but I, I feel like that, that natural unfolding of self that you would go to if you allowed your meaning making mechanism to unfold would take you down that line of the flow channel where you're at that nice four percent you know uh, uh ratio between challenge and skill but you can't get there if you have a society that says i need you to wake up at this time come to this yes. job or you can't survive and so people aren't able to find that doubt, aren't able to find that channel because they're not autonomous enough because they don't have the financial security enough or the peace of mind enough exactly, exactly. to find that. And so the attempt to, you're putting your finger on something that I should emphasize because I, I, I mean, right now we're talking about meaning and I'm talking about it as a cognitive scientist. And so I tend to orient on cognition, individual and distributed cognition and culture, culture and cognition are deeply interpenetrating. But given what I've said about ultimately connectedness to the environment, which I did mention earlier, right? Uh, uh, restructuring the environment is also part and parcel, a significant thing that has to happen. But, but to go back to my point, just to say, when we're talking about autonomy, you can also err of thinking about this as too political. Now, I agree you should think of it as political in the Aristotelian sense of politics, not the modern sense, which is who gets to wield the, the reins of power, where politics was how do we organize distributed shared cognition so we get flourishing, right? And you're right to point that autonomy has that political dimension to it. But think about what I was, what I was also saying is autonomy is also an inward thing. You are a dynamically self-organizing thing. That self-organization has the capacity for adaptivity, but it also has the dramatic capacity for self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. Autonomy is about getting that self-organizing so that it is running in a way that is improving your connectedness, right? So I think of autonomy and relatedness, and they should be. Autonomy, relatedness, and mastery are all deeply interpenetrating and interrelated, right? And so what I'm trying to suggest to you is I think everything that 
sorry, that's too bold. I, there's good reason why you're hearing uh, self-determination theory, while you're hearing autonomy, mastery, and relatedness, because relevance, realization, meaning-making is about getting it self-organizing in a right way, autonomy. So you religio, you're connected in the right way. Mastery, where mastery doesn't mean power, that's the having mode. It has much more to with the being mode. It means a capacity to enter into, as you're saying, things like the flow state, the state of one-ment and connectedness, to have things matter to you and to have you matter to other things. One thing I can't help but think about a lot is the way that the, I guess, the new sphere or the the, the mytholinguistic landscape or realm, um, the cultural narratives act as a second environment that Definitely. we have to navigate and that a lot of what is happening right now in that second environment is a continual push away from these, what would be the three key needs of something like self-determination or flow because you know, the idea of success, for instance, is like a white picket fence where you drive a car, where you're like in a cubicle, it's isolating, right? So that's not relatedness. And then you're not really doing mastery because you're, um, you're doing routine work. You're doing work that isn't really intrinsically motivated. It's extrinsic motivation for the sake yes. of status and wealth. Yeah. And then same, and then we've already touched on autonomy, but again, you're, kind of being puppeteered by the social environment rather to, to get to those ends rather than being uh, intrinsically motivated by your own desire right. to seek flow. Because we have decided for historical reasons and also because of a certain kind of success that we will let one self-organizing system run everything, the market. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a crypto Marxist or anything. I'm not trying to do yeah. But we, and, and what, what we're failing to understand is that, and then we're now starting to wake up, maybe it's too late, I hope it's not, that the market is always situated within culture and culture is always situated within the environment. And what, why do I say that? Culture is imaginal. It's serious play. Most of what's around you is cultural, other than your naked body and the atmosphere you're, you're breathing. And it's largely to do, in a, right now, to enable you to do this. And what is this? This is serious play. Well, it's for the market. Yeah, but that's not why we find it valuable enough to do, to bring it into the market, if you want to put it that way. We're, we're confusing a method and a means with a motive. And that's a, that's a pervasive problem in our society right now. We're confusing means with motive, right? Well, this is how you could do it. That, but that doesn't tell me what's my motive for doing it or, uh, because my reason for why I'm doing it will tell me if I'm doing it well or not, where my means won't do that. My means will just get me, get me somewhere, right? But when I wanna ask, but where am I going? The means don't tell me that. So culture, used to mediate between what you might call our economic behavior and the you know, ecological environment. And it mediated that by the serious play we did, not within our own individual heads, but in the distributed cognition between us. Culture is like the internet of people. That's what it is. It's the, the power of distributed cognition across people. And what we do is we develop it for its own sake 
by serious play within the being mode. So what was it that tutored culture so that it would properly mediate, it would properly develop and grow and you know, tutor the market and keep us in contact with the environment? Well, that's what religions did for a long time. Again, that's what religions did. Again, one more time, because people are gonna, I'm not telling you to return or to take up a religion. I'm not telling you you shouldn't either. I'm telling you that if we don't understand the functionalities that made most lives meaningful for most people and why the opposite is the case for us now, we are not going to address the meaning crisis. And if we don't address the meaning crisis, we can spin the market as bloody fast as we want to. And it's not going to solve the problem because it isn't solving the problem. That seems to like, that's what the empirical evidence. And you can say, well, the market is malformed. I agree with you. And one of the ways the market is malformed is because we allow it to have unchallenged authority. We may have made it the God of our life. And it is not a good God in that sense. No, I mean, rates of suicide, depression, anxiety, uh, political radicalization, all exactly. of these things, I think, tell us that we're failing in some way. Yes. And again, this is not, and, and, and what I really am trying to not let me people do to me is box me into the capitalism versus Marxism debate, because that very, that, that shared presuppositional framework of that debate is exactly what I'm trying to challenge and break out of. And, and how do you think we can jump into maybe a new paradigm? One thing I keep coming back to that I can't help but circle around. I mean, there's things that are practical, I guess, like basic income. I think that something like that's going to be really beneficial to get the pressure off the amygdala, like I said earlier, and allow people to have these expansive thoughts. But I also think next to that, there needs to be something like a new myth. I keep coming back to this idea that we yeah. need a new myth to unify us. And I, I wonder how possible that is in a world that is becoming increasingly focused on decentralization and these, these postmodern approaches to things. But I do feel like we need some kind of myth that unifies us and changes the incentive from status and narcissism and attention yeah. uh, to, to something that's more about self-actualization, becoming, um, finding your Tao, celebrating the best version of yourself and giving that to society. So I talk about this with two things that uh, um, one is what I call the religion that's not a religion, where instead of doing this, I have a tremendous respect for myth. We misuse the word myth, by the way. Um, we, should, we, we use myth to mean a, 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 a widespread falsity. No, myths are imaginal fictions that allow us to augment reality, like augmented reality, so that we can see patterns we otherwise couldn't see. Perennial and pertinent patterns that we need to see that we can't see unless we augment reality in an imaginal way. Now, the trouble for that is our culture is so belief-centric that if you don't believe it, it can't work for you. We have to get people off of belief. And this is why I now talk about a religion that's not a religion. One thing is I wanna put aside the two worlds mythology structure that has, you know, that is a common structure across the religions and because that is not reconcilable to my mind with the scientific worldview. So that's one problem I have. Again, if you're finding meaning in life within and you're cultivating wisdom and other people are telling you this within your religion, I'm not telling you to stop. I don't have any right 
or, or that would be hubris on my part to do that. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying in general, and you see this by the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, no religious affiliation. Religions are becoming not people are not people are not rejecting them as false. They're rejecting them as notice the word I'm going to use here, irrelevant. There's no religio for them in these religions. Right. So we need, right? We need to the fact that, okay, we have to get a religion that's not a religion. It doesn't have the two worlds mythology. It has to be reconcilable and integratable with our very best and ongoing self-correcting science and history. And it should be focused not at the level of belief. It should be focused at the, what I call the non-propositional kinds of knowing. Your skills, your perspectives, your states of mind, that sense of presence, the way you transform your identities by participating and conforming to reality. It should emphasize all of those in the way we've been talking about. It should be enhancing your religio, not your credo. Credo means I believe. Mm. We should use our best science to limit what, what, what is sort of acceptable behavior within an ecology of practices. But within that constraint, people should be pursuing ecologies of practices that help them to reliably overcome self-deception, enhance connectedness, both individually and collectively, individual cognition, distributed cognition. They should be able to do that engaging in serious imaginal play that augments their reality, their pattern detection that augments their capacity to get into flow, self-transcendence. So what we could do is instead of trying to create a shared system of beliefs about a world that we've created, we could say, no, no, we've got a process that's telling us how the world works. It's science and philosophy because philosophy goes metaphysics and metaphysics is what's presupposed in science. And we should let them keep doing what they've always been doing, right? And we should be cultivating ecologies of practices that are consistent, but not reducible to, not reducible to, but consistent with that, that allow us to cultivate wisdom. And so we don't have to agree on our particular worldview. And we don't have to have all the same sets of beliefs. What we have to do is agree on shared processes that, yo, you know, Stephen's doing this practice. He's got a good cognitive scientific explanation as to why it's functioning. I can see how it's, uh, you know, affecting the, his life and the lives around him. I, I don't take up that practice, but I take up this practice and Stephen and I can both talk about how these practices are the same not in what they're doing or our particular idiosyncratic beliefs we're having about our lives, but what's, 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 what's universal in the process. We can share it. We can reinforce it. We can gather together like we're doing and create these communities of practices and communities of communities. So I talk about stealing the culture, which is I'm not trying to propose a political or an economic change because those aren't going to work. Right. I, there's a line from the police. Right. There is no political solution. Right. right. That's like the that's the hymn for my life. Right. Yeah. As you're saying that, I just keep thinking like I'm I'm smiling there. I don't know if you caught that because I'm thinking it's like, why are we so afraid of this engagement with people who have different beliefs than us when in reality, like and this is my personal, you know, I, I've, I've this is my own personal 
uh, approach, I guess, and I have my own biases for why this is, but I find those engagements with people who have a different worldview as me as the most like inspiring and fulfilling thing that I can find because it gives me that it increases my relevance making machinery. It, and it puts you into the flow state because they give us challenge and feedback. So, so this is why I'm engaged in this long project with people like Christopher Master Pietro and Chris, uh, right, and Guy Senstock and Philip Lindbergh and, and right, a whole bunch of people, Dialogos. How can we learn? How can we learn to communicate and commune across differences in belief in a way in which we can get into a shared flow state, which doesn't mean we come into an agreement, but we get into a shared flow state where we both are, we're both get, one of the criteria I get is we both come to a place where we couldn't have got to individually. It doesn't mean that you and I have come to the same place. It means that you have afforded emergent flow in me and I've afforded, afforded emergent flow in you and not video game flow, but flow in the right way that will percolate through my psyche and your psyche and permeate through society. That and, and, and my life, and, and, and we're doing that. We're, we're like, we're putting together courses. We, a couple of weekends ago, we ran a course where we took people through a meditative practice, a contemplative practice, a circling practice, a philosophical, uh, a philosophical fellowship practice, and then what I call dialectic into dialogos to train people. How can we do this so that we can steal the culture? How can we set up communities and networks of communities like the way the, you know, the Christians did? Right? And I'm not trying to be insulting to Christianity in any way. They set up this new way of life, the way of agape and these communities. And then they networked the communities together and they found a way of talking to each other, the body of Christ, right? That allowed them to steal the culture. They didn't overthrow the Roman government. They didn't introduce a new economic system. They stole the culture and they made a new civilization possible. I think this is what kills me so much about the current state of the culture wars and our political system is that I want so desperately to see us actually make progress on some of these things that are, I think, crucial to assuaging the meaning crisis. But rather than actually tapping into that space where we can expand upon each other uh, uh, in that flow state and, and grow, in, in other words, prog progress, we're, we're stultifying, we're calcifying, we're, we're retreating into ideology, yep. and we're fighting to see who can win with the sharpest blade or the bluntest object. But none of that actually addresses, ameliorates, assuages, or does anything to really uh, get at the key issues that are really preventing us from accessing that sense of meaning, freedom, autonomy, relatedness, purpose, exactly. mastery. It's we're very, uh, it under, we're undermining our own efforts like constantly with this. We're, we're doing a massive misframing. We're locking ourselves at the level of beliefs where, where, and that's not where relevance realization is taking place. It's taking place below that. And, and we're thinking, listen to the language. We're thinking that having the right beliefs is the solution rather than, right? Notice the having mode, the modal confusion, yeah. rather than undergoing the transformation, we all have to engage in individually and collectively if we're going to save ourselves and the planet. Exactly, exactly. And so I, I think, look, the, the, the culture wars, cult, cultists, the culture wars are religious in a profound way. You can see America caught between two new religions, right? And, and first of all, I wanna be clear that these are not, this is not the majority of the American population I'm pointing to. 
but I'm talking about the groups of people that grab the media. You can, there's, the, there's the religion on the left called wokeism. I don't know if that's the right, but even using the word woke is a, is a ripoff from Buddhism, being awake, right? And, and, and then there's the Trump cult on, on the right. And what you got is a religious civil war. And what people don't get, and it's a, the, the, his, the history of people not getting this is nobody wins a religious civil war. Nobody wins. Even the winning side loses. Absolutely. And, and the degree and to which we think that the, 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 the job is to get our side to win the religious civil war is the degree to which we are smashing what's left of the ship that we're trying to keep sailing. Nobody, what happened in the last big religious wars in Europe, right? There were, there's two big ones. There's one in the 16th century, Protestant and Catholics, right? And what do you get? Do you get any one of the, did either one win? No, what happens is both forms of Christianity were weakened and the official secular state is born. Both of the sides lost profoundly and they have been losing ever since. The other big re religious civil war is between Nazism, which is a religion, a pseudo-religious ideology, and communism, Marxism, which is a religion. And I'm, I'm prepared to argue that point, by the way. One, it, it, to real quickly interject, it's no surprise that the, the left and right in America call each other Nazis and communists. And communists, and that the same thing. And we had a titanic huge battle, right, between those two, and, and, and while it did is destroy Europe. And it, right? It set Europe on a very different, like nobody wins. What, ha what happened is the United States becomes predominant, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> nobody wins a religious civil war. Really, if there's one thing people could hear in everything I've said here, nobody wins a religious civil war. And the idea that what we have to do is get our religious side to win is the error. What, you, what we need to do is a new way of being religious that drops below the shared framework that makes the civil war happen and makes a new way of being possible for everybody. That yeah. right is what we need. That's that's why I, that's why I think of that religio and that sense of uh, the the new myth is like we need a binding agent. We need some like one thing I'm fighting for so bad and my own efforts I guess is trying to create like a third place that's a unifying common ground that exists beyond these extremes. But what I'm trying to show you is, think about evolution. Evolution mm -hmm. is a universal process. That doesn't mean that it produces homogeneous sets of animals. In fact, it does the opposite. It produces continual variation in the organisms. The products continually vary, even though the process is universal. Instead of trying to uh, get us to agree on the product, this particular form of religio is the right one for all time. This particular is, instead, why don't we have a religio about meaning in life itself? Exactly. Where the religio is the diversity of thought, the diversity of life, the diversity right. of perspective. The thing that it's binds a, us together is the differences in the... The, dif the, difference, the, the differences in the product, but the, the universality of the process. Because if you have just diversity, then you have no shared intelligibility. And if you have just universality, you have static uh, tyranny, right? You need, right? right? But if you so, if you led with that dialogos mentality, if you led with that sense of meaning making and, and helping each other become better versions of each other, that's a good process, right? That's right. And and the way to think about that 
is again to get people oriented off whether or not their beliefs are true or false. Because let's let science and history do that. Uh, well, it's beliefs about what's good or beautiful, but those aren't really beliefs. Those are stances you're taking. Those are ways in which you're trying to connect yourself to each other and the world. Well, let's understand, let's, let's, let's do the best science on how that process works. And then use that, not, I'm, not, I'm not advocating scientism, not at all. I'm saying, then let's use that to do what we do really great, which is to create imaginal and contemplative and meditative and sensory motor practices that will enhance our capacity to reduce foolishness individually and collectively and enhance connectedness individually and collectively. Remember the connectedness is also and always connectedness to the world. As we kind of start winding this down, because I realize I'm taking up so much of your time here, John, but I love this conversation. Uh, what what are some of the tools and approaches that you think are the best ways to do that uh, right now? The, what are some of the best maybe psychotechnologies or practices that you think can help us uh, cultivate wisdom? Um, yeah, so, let's, let's go with that first. <laughs> so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give like an answer in the set of a set of uh, sentences. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to point to you to, so during COVID, every day, uh, until after I think about eight or nine months, and then every weekend, but it's all there. I, I taught an entire course of meditation, contemplation, ritual, movement. That was the Eastern tradition Then took all the way through the Socratic Western tradition. Socrates, what we can learn from the Socratic dialectic, the logos, right? Socratic, Epicurean, Stoic, and Neoplatonic wisdom culture. People in the West don't realize we have a well-established and until very recently well-developed, powerful wisdom cultivation tradition in the West. We can learn it. That's why Stoicism is undergoing a huge revival right now and why people are comparing Stoicism from the West to Buddhism from the East, right? And so there's an entire course there for you on how to cultivate an ecology of practice. A Sangha grew up around it. That Sangha has moved on to uh, a, a Discord server community called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, where there are people doing these practices, homing ecologies of practices, entering into discussion and dialogos. But there's other communities. Peter Lindbergh has his STOA community, also has an ecology of practices, right? Uh, Rafe Kelly has amazing ecology of practice we have mindfulness martial arts parkour discourse like all of them there's tremendous resources take up a course and i mean that in the original sense not just academic a course something that flows and that you can flow with take up a course of development within a community of committed individuals and they're committed not to a particular set of beliefs or a particular individual or a particular victory over opponents they're committed to individually and collectively reducing foolishness and enhancing connectedness i love it john is there anywhere we can uh, point people for some stuff that you're working on right now or anything that you'd like to tell anybody about before we jump off here oh so um <laughs> uh, i mean go to my channel on youtube and there's a there's awakening from the meaning crisis, uh, uh, which is we've talked a lot about. There's a there's an ongoing dialogical where I practice dialectic into dialogos uh, called Voices with Verveki, and then there's three 
series where I try to bridge between the cognitive science and doing dialogos with other people. I have one on consciousness with Greg Enriquez called Untangling the World Knot, one with Greg Enriquez and Christopher Mastropietro called The Elusive Eye, capital I, The Nature and Function of the Self. One I'm doing right now uh, with uh, Zevi Slavin and Guy Senstock on cognitive science and, and uh, sorry, uh, cognitive science is in the background. It's on the relationship between dialogos we were talking about today and mystical realization. How do you get mystical realization within the individual and dialogos between people to properly coordinate? And how, how can we best understand that? Uh, I have a new big series. It's gonna be as big as Awakening for the Meaning Crisis. It was really delayed significantly by COVID and then a bunch of factors that unrolled. I hope to be filming it towards the end of this year and it's gonna come out in the beginning of next year called After Socrates right? Meaning both what came after Socrates, but also the pursuit of Socrates. After Socrates, the cultivation of wisdom through authentic dialogue. And we're going to take a full, that's going to be another big series like Awakening for the Meaning Crisis. That's coming. And that should, right, it's all, I'm close to saying definitely should be released at the beginning of 2022. Can't wait for that. John, man, there is a million things I still wanted to ask you. Uh, I'm glad that we even got the extra time that we had. I really hope we can do this again uh, soon. I do too. Sorry, yeah. that sounded self-promotional. When I meant it, I feel the same way. It's always that way when, sorry, that's always the way when you're in Dialogos. You mm -hmm. like get all the, many of the Socratic dialogues end with people having their questions unanswered. There's more, you get that sense of emergence and moreness. And yes, that's always the case when people enter in good faith into Dialogos. Well, I appreciate you entering into that uh, good faith with me, John. So thank you so much thank for joining so much. me. Thank you so much, Stephen. Mm -hmm.